Volume Three, Chapter Three of The Smuggler by George Payne Rainsford James. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Three. About six o'clock on the evening of the same day, the cottage of Mrs. Clare was empty. The good widow herself stood at the garden gate and looked up the road into the wood along which the western sun was streaming low. After gazing for a moment in that direction, she turned her eyes to the left, and then down the edge of the wood, which stretched along in a tolerably even line, till it reached the farther angle. The persevering dragoons were patrolling round it still, and Mrs. Clare murmured to herself, "'How will he ever get out if they keep such a watch?' She was then going into the cottage again, when a hurried step caught her ear, coming apparently from the path which led from the side of Holden to the back of the house, and thence round the little garden into the road. "'That sounds like Harding's step,' thought the widow, and her ear had not deceived her. In another minute she beheld him turn the corner of the fence and come towards her, but there was a heated and angry look upon his face, which she had never seen there before and, although she had acted for the best, and not without much consideration, in sending Kate upon Mr. Radford's commission, and not going herself, she feared that her daughter's lover might not be well pleased his bride should undertake such a task. As he came near, the symptoms of anger were more apparent still. There was the cloudy brow, the flashing eye, the hurried and impetuous walk, which she had often seen in her own husband, a man very similar in character to him who now approached her, when irritated by harsh words, and Widow Clare prepared to do all she could to soothe him ere Kate's return. But Harding did not mention her he loved, demanding, while yet at some distance, "'Where is Mr. Radford, Mrs. Clare?' "'He is not here, Mr. Harding,' replied the widow. "'He has not been here since this morning.' "'But what makes you look so cross, Harding? You seem angry.' "'And well I might be,' answered Harding, with an oath. "'What do you think they have set about? "'That I informed against them and betrayed them into the hands of the dragoons "'when, they know, I saw them safe out of the marsh, "'and it must have been their own stupidity "'or the old man's babbling fears that ruined them, "'always trusting people that were sure to be treacherous "'and doubted those he knew to be honest.' "'Well, I'll make him eat his words, or cram them down his throat with my fist.' "'Why, he spoke quite kindly of you this morning, Harding,' said the widow. "'There must be some mistake.' "'Mistake!' cried the smuggler sharply. "'There is no mistake. "'It is all over Hyde and Folkestone already, "'and everyone says that it came from him. "'Can you not tell me where he is gone? "'Which way did he turn?' "'Towards his own house,' replied Mrs. Clare. "'But you had better come in, Harding, and get yourself cool before you go to him. "'You will speak angrily now, and mischief may come of it. "'I am sure there is some mistake.' "'I will not sit down till I have made him own it,' answered the smuggler. "'Perhaps he is up at Harborne. "'I'll go there. Where is Kate, Mrs. Clare?' "'She has gone towards Harborne House,' said the widow, not choosing in the excited state of his feelings to tell him her daughter's errand. But she will be back in one minute, if you will but come in. No, he replied, I will come back by and by. Perhaps I shall meet her as I go. 
and he was turning towards the wood when suddenly, at the spot where the road entered amongst the trees, the pretty figure of Kate Clare, as trim and neat and simple as a wild flower, appeared walking slowly back towards the cottage. But she was not alone. By her side was a tall, handsome young man, dressed in full military costume, with his heavy sword under his arm and a star upon his breast. He was bending down, talking to his fair companion with a friendly air, and she was answering him with a gay smile. A pang shot through Harding's bosom, the first that ever the poor girl had caused, nor indeed would he have felt it then, had he not been irritated. For his was a frank and confiding heart, open as the day, in which that foul and dangerous guest, suspicion, usually could find no lurking place. At first he did not recognise, in the glittering personage before his eyes, the grave, plain-looking stranger who, a week or two before, had conversed with him for a few minutes on the cliffs near Sandgate. But he saw, as the two came on, that Kate raised her eyes, and as soon as she perceived him standing by her mother, a look of joy lighted up her face, which made him murmur to himself, "'I'm a fool!' The stranger, too, saw him, but it made no change in his demeanour, and the next moment, to Harding's surprise, the officer came forward somewhat more quickly, and took Widow Clare by the hand, saying with a grave smile, "'Do you not know me, Mrs. Clare?' "'Gracious heaven!' cried the widow, drawing back and gazing at him. "'Can it be you, sir?' "'Yes, indeed,' he answered. "'Why, Kate here knew me directly, though she was but ten or eleven, I think, when I went away.' "'Oh, that was because you were always so fond of her, Mr. Henry.' "'replied Widow Clare. "'Gracious, how you are changed!' "'Harding was talking to Kate while these few words passed, "'but he heard them, nor did he fail to remark "'that two mounted dragoons, one leading a horse by the rein, "'followed the young officer from the wood. "'He now recognised him also, "'and by his dress perceived the rank he held in the army, "'though Mrs. Clare called him Mr. Henry.' "'Yes, I am changed indeed,' replied Leighton, to the widow's last remark. "'In body and health, Mrs. Clare, but not in heart, I can assure you. "'And as I was obliged to visit this wood, I resolved I would not be so near you "'without coming in to see how you were getting on, with your pretty Kate here.' "'My pretty Kate very soon,' said Harding, aloud. "'And the young officer turned suddenly round and looked at him more attentively than before.' "'Ah, Mr. Harding,' he exclaimed, "'is that you? "'We have met before, though perhaps you don't remember me.' "'Oh, yes, I do, sir,' replied the smuggler dryly. "'But I must go, Kate,' and he added in a low tone, "'I shall be back by and by.' Thus saying, he walked away, but before he had taken ten steps, Leighton followed and took him by the arm. "'What do you want with me, sir?' asked the smuggler, turning sharply round and putting his hand in the bosom of his coat. "'Hush!' replied the young officer. "'I seek no harm to you. "'Merely one word. "'For heaven's sake, Harding, "'quit this perilous life of yours, "'at least before you marry that poor girl. "'If I have understood you rightly, "'that you are about to marry her, "'I speak as a friend.' "'Thank you, sir,' answered the smuggler. "'I dare say you mean it kind, "'but it was hardly fair of you either "'to come and talk with me upon the cliff, "'if you are, as I suppose.' "'the Sir Henry Leighton all the folks are speaking about. "'Why, my good friend, my talking with you did you no harm. 
replied the young officer. "'You cannot say that I led you to speak of anything "'that could injure either you or others. "'Besides, I have nothing to do with you, gentlemen of the sea, "'though I may with your friends on land. "'But take the advice of one well disposed towards you, "'and, above all, do not linger about this place at present, "'for it is a dangerous neighbourhood "'for anyone who has had a share in the late transactions.' "'That advice I shall take at all events,' answered Harding bluntly, "'and perhaps the other too, for I am sick of all this.' And thus saying, he walked away, passing close by the two dragoons, who offered no obstruction. In the meanwhile, Leighton, returning to Widow Clare and her daughter, went into the cottage and talked to them for a few minutes of old days. Gradually, however, he brought the conversation round to the inhabitants of Harborne House— and asked if either the widow or Kate ever went up there. "'Oh, Kate goes twice every day, sir,' said Mrs. Clare, "'for we have all the finest of the poultry to keep down here. "'But you are not going there yourself, Mr. Henry?' "'Alas, no,' answered Leighton, with a sigh. "'Those days have gone by, Mrs. Clare, "'and I am now a stranger where I was once loved.' "'Don't say so, sir,' replied the widow. "'Don't say so, for I am sure where you were best loved of all, "'there you are best loved still.' "'That, I believe,' answered Leighton. "'But at all events I am not going there at present, "'and if Kate would do me a service, "'she would, the first time she sees Miss Zara Croyland alone, "'tell her that if ever she rides or walks out along the road by the checkers, "'she will find an old friend by the way.' "'Miss Zara, sir, did you say?' asked Widow Clare. "'Yes, mother, yes,' cried Kate. "'You forget Miss Edith is not there now. "'She is down at Mr. Croyland's.' "'But remember, Kate,' continued Leighton, "'I do not wish my name mentioned to many persons in the house. "'Indeed, it will be better not to speak of me at all to anyone but Zara. "'It must be soon known that I am here, it is true, "'but I wish to let events take their course till then.' "'And now, Mrs. Clare, good evening. "'I shall see you again some day soon, "'and you must let me know when Kate's wedding day is fixed.' "'The mother looked at her daughter with a smile, "'and Kate blushed and laughed. "'It is to be this day week, sir,' answered Mrs. Clare. "'Leighton nodded his head, saying, "'I will not forget,' "'and mounting his horse at the door, rode away. "'Now did you find him, Kate?' asked Mrs. Clare in a low tone, "'the moment Sir Henry Leighton was gone. "'Oh, yes,' replied her daughter. "'The dragoons did not follow me as you thought they would, mother, "'and I set down the basket close to the willow. "'At first he did not answer when I asked if he wanted anything, "'but when I spoke again he said, "'No, a thousand thanks for what you have brought,' "'and he spoke kindly and civilly. "'Then, just as I was going away, he said, "'Kate, Kate, let me know when the soldiers are gone. "'If you could bring me a woman's dress, I could easily get away.' "'I should not be afraid of going any more, mother,' the girl continued, "'for he seems quite changed by his misfortune, "'and not rude and jesting as he always used to be "'whenever I saw him before.' "'The idea of the woman's clothes seemed to strike Mrs. Clare very much, "'and the good widow and her daughter set their wits to work "'to consider how all that was necessary could be procured, "'for a very serious impediment thrust itself "'in the way of either mother or child "'lending him a suit of their own apparel. "'Neither of them were very tall women, "'and though young Radford was himself not above the middle height, 
yet Kate's gown would not have fallen further than halfway down his leg, and the poor girl laughed merrily to think of what a figure he would make just in her garments. It would have been the old story of the wolf in sheep's clothing, assuredly. If we could but accomplish it and enable him to escape, thought Mrs. Clare, especially after Harding has just been up here, it would show Mr. Radford clearly enough that John had nothing to do with informing against him. But the question of where fitting apparel was to be procured still remained unsettled, till Kate suggested that perhaps her aunts at Glastonbury might do. "'She is very tall,' continued the girl, "'and I am sure she would lend them to me, "'for she and my uncle always have been so kind. "'Suppose I walk over early tomorrow and ask her.' "'Now the little farm which Mrs. Clare's brother held "'was somewhat more than seven miles off "'on the other side of Cranbrook. "'But still, what is the exertion which woman will not make "'for a fellow-creature in distress?' "'And Mrs. Clare determined that she would rise betimes.' and go to William Harris's herself, certain of a kind reception and ready consent from those who had always displayed towards her in adversity the feelings of affection which the more worldly-minded generally shower upon the prosperity alone. It was far for her daughter to walk, she thought, and besides, Harding might come, and it would not do for Kate to be absent. Thus, had she settled it in her own mind when Mr. Radford entered the cottage to inquire after his son. High were the praises that he bestowed upon Kate and Mrs. Clare for their kindness, and he expressed his warm approval of their little scheme. Nevertheless, he turned the matter in his mind in order to see whether he could not save Mrs. Clare the trouble of going nearly to Goudhurst by obtaining the necessary articles of female apparel somewhere else. His own women-servants, however, were all short and stout. The only other persons whom he could think of, as at all approaching his son in height, he did not choose to trust, and therefore it was at length determined that the original plan should be followed. But the worthy gentleman laid strict injunctions upon Mrs. Clare to be early in her proceedings, as he feared much, from all he had gathered, that the wood might be more strictly searched in the course of the following day. When this was settled, and Mr. Radford had expressed his thanks more than once, Mrs. Clare thought it a good opportunity of turning the conversation to Harding, and she asked Mr. Radford if he had seen him, adding, "'He has gone to look for you, sir, and seems very quick and angry, because the people down about his place have got a report that he informed about the run, and he fancies you have said so.' "'Poor nonsense, Mrs. Clare, I never said anything of the kind,' replied Mr. Radford." "'It is a story put about by the custom-house officers themselves, "'just to cover the persons from whom they had the information. "'But we shall discover them some day and pay them handsomely. "'Tell Harding not to mind what people say, for I never thought of such a thing.' "'That I will, sir,' replied the widow, "'for I am sure it will set his mind at rest. "'You must know very well, sir, that he's as honest a man as ever lived.' "'To be sure, to be sure,' answered Mr. Radford, with great warmth of manner. "'No one knows that better than I do, Mrs. Clare.' But whether Mr. Radford really felt the warmth which he assumed may be another question. His seemings were not always the best indications of his real sentiments, and when he left Mrs. Clare's cottage after all had been arranged, his first thought was, "'We will reckon with Mr. Harding by and by,' The account is not made up yet. 
Before I proceed to other scenes, it may be as well to go on with the part assigned in this history to Mrs. Clare and her daughter, at least, till the morning of the following day. About eight o'clock at night, Harding returned, still irritable and discontented, having failed to find Mr. Radford. The account, however, which the widow gave of her conversation with that gentleman soothed him a good deal, but he would not stay the night, as he had done before, saying that he must absolutely be home as soon as possible, and would return perhaps the next day, or at all events the day after. "'I must do the best I can, Mrs. Clare,' he continued, "'to help these fellows out of the scrape they've run into. Two or three of them are good men enough, and as they risk their necks, if they are taken, I should like to get them down and give them a passage to the other side.' "'So, you see, I shall be going about here a good deal for the next four or five days, "'and will look in from time to time to see you and my dear little Kate.' "'But are you going to walk all the way back to-night, John?' asked Kate, as he rose to depart. "'No, my love,' he answered. "'I've got a horse up at Plurendon, but the beast cast a shoe as I was coming, "'and I was obliged to leave him at the blacksmith's.' "'No sooner was Harding gone,' Then a little kindly contest rose between mother and daughter as to which should go over to Glastonbury, but Mrs. Clare persisted against all her child's remonstrances, and in order that they might rise before daylight, both retired to bed early and slept calmly and peacefully, unknowing what the morrow, to which they both looked anxiously forward, was to bring. The sun was yet some way below the horizon when Mrs. Clare set out, but she met with no impediment, and walking on stoutly arrived at an early hour at a little farmhouse inhabited by her brother. She found Farmer Harris and his wife, with their two sons and Mrs. Harris's nephew, three stout, good-humoured young men, seated at their breakfast, and warm and joyful was the reception of Aunt Clare, one joking her upon Kate's approaching marriage, another declaring Jack Harding, whom they all knew, was a capital fellow, and all striving to make her comfortable and pressing her to partake of their morning meal. Every one of the party was eager to obtain some information from her, who lived so much nearer to the spot in regard to the late discomfiture of the smugglers, although none seemed to take any great interest in them, all declaring that the Ramleys and their gang were the pest of the country, and that young Dick Cradford was not a bit better. Such opinions regarding that young gentleman acted as a warning to Mrs. Clare not to mention the object of the loan she came to solicit, and when, after having rested about twenty minutes, she preferred her petition to Mrs. Harris, it was readily granted by the tall farmer's wife, although not without some expression of curiosity as to what her sister-in-law could want a dress of hers for. "'Kate or I will bring it back to-night or to-morrow morning,' replied Mrs. Clare, "'and I'll tell you what we want it for at the wedding.' which, remember, is to be yesterday week. Aye, we will all come down with white favours and our best buckles, said young William, the farmer's eldest son, and I'll have a kiss for the bride. A gown and cloak of Mrs. Harris's having been brought down, they were not her best, and neatly folded up in a shawl handkerchief, Mrs. Clare set forward on her way home, hurrying her steps as much as possible, lest any untoward event should prevent the execution of her scheme. A stout countrywoman accustomed to exercise, the widow accomplished the walk in as short a time as possible, 
yet it was nine o'clock before she reached the cottage, and she instantly dispatched her daughter to the hide in the wood, with the clothes folded up in as small a space as possible, and laid in the bottom of a basket covered with eggs. The only difficulty was in regard to a bonnet, and after earnest consultation between mother and child, it was determined that, as Mrs. Clare's head was somewhat larger than Kate's, her bonnet should be put over her daughter's, which was easily accomplished. Both were of straw, and both were plain enough, but to conceal the contrivance from the eyes of any one whom Kate might meet, Mrs. Clare pinned a small piece of lace, which had been bought for the wedding, into the inside of her own bonnet, remarking that it would do to hide young Mr. Radford's face a bit. Furnished with all that was needful, and having had the instructions which Mr. Radford had left, repeated carefully to her by her mother, fair Kate Clare set out upon her expedition, passing one of the dragoons, who were still patrolling round the wood, near the place where the road entered it. The man said something to her as she went by, but did not attempt to follow, and Kate walked on, looking behind her from time to time till she was satisfied that her proceedings were unwatched. Then, hurrying on with a quicker step, she turned to the path which led to the back of the gardens of Halbourne House, and approached the old willow and the brushwood which covered the place where Richard Radford was concealed. "'Mr. Radford,' she said as soon as she was quite close, "'Mr. Radford, here is what you wanted. Take it as fast as you can.' "'Is there any one near but you, Kate?' asked the voice of Richard Radford. "'Oh, no,' she replied, "'but the soldiers are still on the outside of the wood watching.' "'I know that,' rejoined the voice again, "'for I saw them last night when I tried to get out. "'But are you sure that none of them followed you, Kate?' "'Oh, quite sure,' she answered, "'for I looked behind all the way.' "'Well, stay and help me to put the things on,' "'said Richard Radford, issuing forth from behind the bushes.' like a snake out of its hole. Kate Clare willingly agreed to help him, and while the gown and the cloak were thrown over his other clothes, told him all that his father had said, desiring him not to come up to Radford Hall till he heard more, but to go down to the Lone House, near Iden Green, where he could find one or two friends already collected. "'Why, these are never your own clothes, Kate,' said young Radford, as she pinned on the gown for him. "'They fit as if they were made for me.' "'Not at the back,' answered Kate, laughing. "'I cannot get the gown to meet there, "'but that will be covered up by the cloak, "'so it does not much matter. "'No, they are my aunts at Glastonbury, "'and you must let me have them back, Mr. Radford, "'as soon as ever you have got to Iden Green, "'for my mother has promised to return them to-night.' "'I don't know how I shall get them back, Kate,' "'answered Richard Radford.' "'for none of our people are like to venture up here. "'Can you come down and fetch them? "'It is not much out of your way.' "'No, I can't do that,' answered Kate, "'who did not altogether like going to the lone house she had mentioned. "'But you can send them down to Cranbrook at all events, "'and there they can be left for me at Mrs. Tim's shop. "'They'll be quite safe, and I will call for them either tonight or tomorrow morning.' "'Well, I will do that, my love.' "'replied Richard Radford, taking the bonnet and putting it on his head. "'Very well, sir,' answered Kate, not well pleased with the epithet he had bestowed upon her, "'and taking a step to move away. "'I will call for them there.' "'But young Radford threw his arm round her wrist, saying, "'Come, Kate, I must have a kiss before you go. 
You give plenty to Harding, I dare say. Let me go, sir, cried Kate Clare indignantly. You are a base, ungrateful young man. But young Radford did not let her go. He took the kiss she struggled against by force, and he was proceeding to father insult when Kate exclaimed, If you do not let me go, I will scream till the soldiers are upon you. They are not far. She spoke so loud that her very tone excited his alarm, and he withdrew his arm from her waist, but still held her hand tight, saying, "'Come, come, Kate. Nonsense. I did not mean to offend you. Go up to Harborne House, there's a good girl, and stay as long as you can there, till I get out of the wood.' "'You do offend me, you do offend me,' cried Kate Clare, striving to withdraw her hand from his grasp. "'Will you promise to go up to Harborne, then?' said Richard Radford, and I will let you go. Yes, yes, answered Kate, I will go. And the moment her hand was free, she darted away, leaving the basket she had brought behind her. As soon as she was gone, Richard Radford cursed her for a saucy jade, as if the offence had been hers, not his. And then, taking up the basket, he threw it, eggs and all, together with his own hat, into the deep hole in the sandbank. Advancing along the path till he reached the open road, he hurried on in the direction of Widow Clare's cottage. Of a daring and resolute disposition, for his only virtue was courage, he thought of passing the soldiers as a good joke rather than a difficult undertaking. But still recollecting the necessity of caution, as he came near the edge of the wood, he slackened his pace, tried to shorten his steps, and assumed a more feminine demeanour. When he was within a couple of hundred yards of the open country, he saw one of the dragoons slowly pass the end of the road, and look up, and on issuing forth from the wood, he perceived that the man had paused, and was gazing back. But at that distance the female garments which he wore deceived the soldier, and he was suffered to walk on unopposed towards Iden Green. End of chapter 3